it's been a, a blessing to uh, not only just preach in general, but to, to have the opportunity to do uh, now three messages in a row. Um, previously, the most I've ever done in a row is, is two messages. And so uh, it's allowed, um, because of the, the continuity of the study through the, the verses, it's allowed me personally to, I guess, dive a bit deeper and to have a bit more of an appreciation for uh, the context of each message. Um, and look, I hope it's been a, a blessing to you guys also um, in as much as I've been faithful to the text. Uh, so the, the message today is just on one verse. Regrettably for you guys, we'll still be going for longer than 10 minutes. Uh, but it is just on, on one verse being uh, Titus chapter 2, verse 15. And, and the title is The Authority on Which We Stand. And so just to, to bring us up to date um, from the, or just a bit of a summary from the, the last message, um, much of the, the second chapter uh, is summarized in a, uh, a misordered um, version of a few of the verses. So verses 7, 5, and 10, uh, if you sort of put parts of them together, say, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works so that the word of God may not be reviled and that we may adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour. And much of the chapter uh, in chapter 2 really heads toward that goal. How are we adorning the doctrine of God? Um, arguably by putting into place the characteristics uh, which are described in the, the first parts of the second chapter. And this is done in the, in the family, in the, in the elder, in the employee or in the bond servant, as the, uh, the text has it, in the Christian in general. And there is a, a beauty, as I say, an adorning that exists in as much as we put into place these characteristics. We adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour and we leave no, no legitimate room, at least, uh, for that doctrine to be reviled. Uh, certainly the world will, will bring all sorts of charges against us, but whether they are legitimate or not uh, is an entirely different matter. So we put into place these characteristics as described in Titus chapter 2, uh, and I think we'll be doing just fine. So the grace of God has appeared, continuing our, our summary. And I asked you the question, when was the last time you contemplated the wonder of a wretched sinner such as you and such as me being forgiven? by a, an all-supreme, uh, merciful, and yet just God? When was the last time you, you contemplated the wonder of that idea? And the text says that the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, uh, and that is true, but the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for you. If you are in Christ here today, not only is that a, a broad statement to say that God has, has come and he's brought his grace uh, for all people, for all kinds of people that exist all over the world, but if you are in Christ, then, then God has called you. You are part of his elect. And so it is both uh, broad and specific. And the third point, and one which I've often struggled with, our blessed hope is the appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. It's a, a reality which is deep and which is holy and which is joyful to contemplate, uh, and yet for some reason uh, I myself struggle to set my mind upon it 
Uh, and I wonder if it might be similar for you also, but hopefully we can uh, provoke one another to that good work, uh, as Tom's been discussing a little bit recently. So let's read, uh, just to engross ourselves in the text a little more, um, Titus chapter 2, verses 7 to 15. Titus chapter 2, 7 to 15. It says, Show yourself in all respects, speaking to Titus himself, to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour. We see that goal once again. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Now, verse of the day. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. Let's pray. Lord, even, even as uh, Paul addresses Titus, this very day may I be bound by the, the scope of your word. May I declare, may I exhort and rebuke in as much as it is applicable um, with all authority, Lord, but only in as much as your word gives scope for the same. And Lord, may we all submit ourselves to your word, uh, being better off for having been here, and this to your glory for the extension of your kingdom. Amen. I hadn't decided if I was going to mention it or not, but uh, last week following the, the sermon, you'll remember that the, uh, the Kumaites were here, uh, and, and Pastor Scott said to me that uh, he, was, he was waiting as I preached through verse 13 for me to sort of mention the, the conversational way in which Jesus is said to be uh, the Son of God, is said to be God, I should say. Uh, and just by a recap, waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And what's, uh, and you've heard me say it before, what's perhaps significant about that is Paul doesn't lay out a, a big argument on, on why it is that Jesus is the Son of God and how it's all, uh, all tied to the Old Testament and appointed towards this Messiah who would come and he'd be of the bloodline of David and so on and so forth. He doesn't say that. He simply just says, the appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, as if it's an accepted fact, which shows that in their everyday speaking with one another, it was an accepted fact. It was just that, an accepted fact that Jesus is God. It wasn't something that every time it was spoken about needed to be uh, vastly proved in the, in the nitty-gritties of the Old Testament. Uh, but it was an accepted fact. It's something which I would say is, is tacit, is implied in the text, uh, as opposed to needing to be drawn out in every occasion. Just to be clear, not that there's anything wrong with drawing it out, uh, but the fact that it's assumed uh, is, is quite significant. So that was uh, 
shall we say, a point missed from the, uh, the last sermon. Uh, and we move on to, to verse 15 now. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. So by way of laying the foundation for the message, I suppose, as much for, for my sake as for you guys as hearers, this verse uh, is most obviously applied to, to Titus. Uh, this is Paul writing to Titus, and so he says, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. But because uh, Titus was a, a leader going into the island of Crete to, to establish churches, to establish elders within these churches, um, I think it's, it's right to make the application, yes, of course, to Titus, with whom the, the letter is addressed, uh, but also to those who are elders or, or leaders within God's church. Because Titus, uh, in a sense, had an authority which was given to him from God for the work that he was going to do. Um, similarly, we can make that application from the same principle uh, to elders and leaders uh, within God's church even today. And whilst the, the declaring, the exhortation and the rebuking uh, of Scripture is not something which is limited to uh, elders and leaders, certainly it can be done uh, from, from lay member to lay member to those who are not in leadership, uh, as per perhaps passages like Matthew 18, uh, this text itself addresses those, I would say, well, Titus and those within uh, elders and, and a leadership position. With that being said, if you're not in an eldership or a leadership position, there's plenty that you'll be able to get from this message and plenty of principles you'll be able to draw from it. So by all means, uh, stay tuned. So Paul starts with declare these things. And if you have uh, another translation in front of you, oftentimes uh, declare is simply translated as, as speak or teach. Uh, and there's perhaps at least one grammatical reason why the ESV translators may have chosen declare. Uh, but I wonder also if they did it in order to, to differentiate between exhort and rebuke, which of course are done by means of speech. And certainly the things that have come before uh, in the what, chapters 1 and 2 um, are worthy of being declared. We might in perhaps more... Uh, modern language translate, declare, exhort, and rebuke as proclaim, apply, and correct. Proclaim, apply, and correct. But the verse begs the question, what is it that Titus is to declare and to speak? Well, Paul says, declare these things, implying the things that have come before, or broadly, uh, things which are in line with the doctrine of God. But specifically these things, to train godly and holy leaders who know the word of God. These leaders ought to know positively what God's word teaches and be able to use it to critique the falsities of others. He's to declare the teaching, to teach well the roles people have within society and the family, stressing the importance of that family unit. He's to command proper order in all relationships, including those of master and servant, or employer and employee as our application for today. He's to teach that God's people ought to be a purified people, 
sanctified in the way they live, and this ought to be noticeable. He's to teach that the grace of God ought to be expectantly waited upon and should result in the purification once again of the Lord's people. And God's people should shun evil and chase after good. And all this unto the adorning of the doctrine of God, unto the fame of Yahweh our God. Just as a, uh, what, ten-line summary of chapters one to two. These are the things which, which Paul bids to Titus. You are to declare, exhort, and rebuke in line with these things. So declare. And subsequently to exhort. Exhort with all authority. This reinforces uh, what Paul has said to Titus in chapter 1, verse 9, where he says he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And subsequently, a few verses on in, chapter, in verse 13, therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Now the word for the give instruction in chapter 1 verse 9 is the same used of exhort in our present verse of the day. And as in English, rebuke is the same in verses 1 and 9 of chapter 1 and chapter 2 verse 15. But this is, if you're going to tune out from, from now on, get this as the, uh, the central part of the message. This is the, the foundation which, is it, which it is all built upon. And I think the, the central presupposition or the, the central assumed thing within what Paul is saying. His presupposition is that in his or, or their, the elders, the, uh, the leaders in Titus teaching, in their declaring, their exhorting, and in their rebuking, they are doing so in accordance with God's word. And he says, and it's, it's a, a big and bold statement, he says, declare these things, exhort and rebuke, with a little bit of authority, with, with, with a medium amount of maybe seven out of ten authority. He says, do so with all authority. And if you think about the, the weight of that statement, that Titus, and by application, the elders, leaders who, who declare, exhort, and rebuke today are to do so with all authority. When, when a, an elder or a leader does that within the scope of what God's word says, then they do just that. They, they declare, they exhort, and they rebuke with all authority. When they step outside the bounds of that, they do so with no authority. It is an all or nothing kind of thing. And so we can see uh, the great importance of, of stressing the the characteristics of an elder or a leader, of making sure they are equipped for the job because they theoretically do this with all authority. And if they are not adequate for the role, then it's a bad thing to have them in leadership. Exhort. Numerous translations that simply have the word as encourage, and it, it means to, to strongly encourage or to strongly urge someone to do something. And given that notion of encouraging someone to do something, uh, we see that exhortation has to do with the application of God's word. And indeed, I hope that this 
this very message, me preaching uh, this right now, uh, I hope that this is a living, breathing application of, of the text that I am uh, declaring, exhorting, and rebuking with all authority in as much as I do so within the scope of God's word. That Titus and those who lead in the church are to declare, they are to speak about the things of sound doctrine, and they are to strongly encourage, they are to exhort the application of those things. And so in, in doing that here today, how do you measure up against the characteristics described in the verses prior? In the, uh, the beginning verses of chapter 2. Maybe it's not something to look at right now, but something to, to consider as you uh, go home or during the week. How do you measure up against those characteristics? And subsequently, how can you pray and strive that those characteristics would be more realized in your life? And in application to the, the elder, what is the substance of your teaching? Is it popular opinion? Perhaps more challengingly for us, is it that which is considered reformed, quote-unquote? And I, as I've reflected upon that, I know that in myself, I, there are numerous theological positions which I espouse, which within reformed circles might be considered fashionable, I suppose you could say. And so it's incumbent upon me as someone who has the, um, the weighty opportunity to preach and teach from time to time to make sure that my espoused positions are in line with God's word, that they are not simply uh, fashionable in reformed circles. Or is the foundation of the, uh, the teaching of the elder the scriptures? And I hope it to be the case. Subsequently, what is the foundation upon which the elder does his declaring, rebuking, uh, and ex exhorting? So that's declare, exhort, and now on to rebuke from verse 15. Uh, if you have a Bible with you, you might like to turn to Proverbs uh, chapter 9. So rebuke is also translated as, as reprove, convince, or to tell uh, one's fault, to convict them of something. And, and on the surface, sorry, and it can come with the connotation, I should say, of bringing correction with the shame of the person being corrected, which on the surface sounds harsh, doesn't it? To not only correct, but to do so uh, bringing a degree of shame on the person being corrected. And so it sounds harsh, but remember, this is in line with, uh, say, other Pauline verses, such as 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10, which says, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. If you, uh, well, if one has uh, shame or grief in a worldly sense, it produces death. But if one has a godly grief, if one has a godly repentance over something that which they've done, over a characteristic within themselves, then that kind of grief produces a repentance. And that kind of repentance leads to salvation without regret. So though uh, correcting and bringing shame upon someone who is in sin uh, may on the surface sound harsh, uh, the goal is, is very, very kind. And this, uh, of course, being in line with chapter 1, verse 13, that they may be sound in the faith. That is the goal of the correction which Paul, at that point, advocates of the, uh, the Cretans. 
So if rebuking is done in line with Scripture, with a gentle spirit, and with the goal that the person being rebuked will become sound or sounder uh, in the faith, uh, that too, as a side point, can help to take away some of the fear of rebuking. But you're in uh, Proverbs chapter 9. Starting from verse 7, it says, Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. For by me your days will be multiplied and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, at you alone will bear it. So there is a delight, really. We ought to be people who love godly correction uh, because of what it brings in our life. And chapter 12, verse 1, don't turn there. It says, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. Bible's words, not mine. But whoever loves discipline, whoever loves uh, correction, loves knowledge. And what a, what a different thing to, to the world, to, to love being corrected, that we might be sharper tools in God's hand. And it's a little bit of a rabbit hole, so I'll try and make it a, just a short one rather than a long one. But as I, as I thought about that, so not only is it different from the world to love correction, but the world as it stands and in the direction that it's going at the moment is, is, is wiping out even any ability to correct. If we have a culture where there is no real right or wrong, where there is no moral right, where there is no moral wrong, where there is no even objective, uh, biological, for instance, right and wrong, then it's not only that the world uh, dislikes being corrected, it's that there's no ability to correct at all. And so the, the biblical worldview uh, presents us with that ability for a start, the ability to correct because there is actually right and there is actually wrong. And then what's more, it says you ought to love being corrected because then you will be a sharper tool in God's hand. You'll be more glorifying to him. Short rabbit hole. That was hard for me. So uh, this, as I sort of alluded to in, the, in saying, you know, pay attention to this point if you're going to tune out from here on in, uh, this is all based on the concept of derived authority, which sounds like a dry concept, but I think it's delicious, so uh, feast with me. Derived authority. God is the only self-sufficient authority. He is the origin of all authority. And this is not only what we see uh, positively taught by the scriptures, that God has authority in himself. He doesn't derive it. He doesn't get it from anybody else. Uh, but it is really a, a logical position. And because we live in God's world, in God's ways, it all leads back to him. So God is the only self-sufficient authority. Anybody else who has any other kind of authority derives it from God. It comes from God. And if you think through me, sorry, think through that with me, the implications. Governments at all levels, police, 
defence forces, the judicial system, courts, the family, the church, elders most, uh, and Titus most easily applicable from the text. They all derive their authority from another. They all derive their authority uh, specifically from God. And so without God, the real and true authority that these institutions maintain would be utterly meaningless. That's the negative teaching. But because God does exist, these institutions do have legitimate authority, again, within the scope of their God-given bounds. There's plenty of application which could be made from that, but I'll, I'll leave it to your delightful minds to do so. Authority is based on an inherent ought, or an inheritance you should or should not do one thing or the other. So if I were to say to you, uh, you, you ought to do this or that thing, or you ought not to do this or that thing, you may uh, consciously or, or unconsciously say, why? Or based on what standard? And what you're really doing is asking me what authority I stand upon in order to make my ought or ought not statement. Or a kid might say, who says? And you might even have heard, uh, and it gets at the heart of the point, even though it is a bit ruder, uh, you might even have heard someone say something like, well, who died and made you God? And that really gets to the heart of it, because it's, uh, even though probably said in a slightly blasphemous way, it gets at the heart of who the true authority is. Who died and made you the ultimate standard? Who died and made you the self-sufficient authority from which all other authority comes? And so in, in thinking about this in terms of who Paul is writing to, to Titus and subsequently to elders and leaders, uh, if Titus were to grab a hold of that, that he, he stands upon the only self-sufficient authority from whom all other authority comes, then he would be fearless in his declaring, his exhorting, and his rebuking. Because he does these things not based on his intellect, not simply a good knowledge of the scriptures, not based on popularity or charisma or anything else, but because he has an authority which is derived from God himself. What a foundational authority to stand upon. And the same is true in application for the leader of today. Uh, most obviously applied to leaders within the church, uh, but legitimately to, to anybody else, perhaps from those groups which we mentioned earlier, um, who exercise authority. Inasmuch as one acts within the God-given scope, their God-given authority, they derive their authority uh, from God himself. And if you're catching this correctly, this ought to produce within any authority bearer, and certainly within the, the elder or the leader, this ought to produce humility and not pride. If it produces pride, then the, uh, the authority bearer has missed the point. Because this authority is God's, not that of the authority bearer. And any supposed authority is utterly meaningless when we step outside God's bounds. And so once again, chapter 1, verse 9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, speaking of the elder, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. The elder must hold firm uh, to the word, making sure he keeps within its bounds, lest he go beyond the scope 
of his role and outside of the authority that God has given him. And should he do so, as I've said before, his authority, his, his declaration, his exhortation, his rebuke would be utterly meaningless. So the last part of the verse, let no one disregard you. So because Titus is told to, to declare, exhort, and rebuke within the scope of his God-given role, within the scope of scriptural truth, Paul can instruct him subsequently to let no one disregard you. Truth always, and I mean that as broadly as it sounds, truth always has its foundation in and its authority from God. And so elders can declare, exhort, and rebuke with all authority, having no one to disregard them. But it's important that they are limited to the scope of God's truth and right applications thereof. And so though it's in my notes, I won't labor the point again, but just to, to say that it shows again the, the absolute importance of making sure that those who are in eldership positions within the church match the characteristics uh, which are described in, in Titus chapter 2, or Titus chapter 1, I should say, uh, and elsewhere within the scripture. Because having folks who are uh, prideful, who do not match up to those characteristics, and hence who uh, may have a, a detrimental effect to, to God's church, to God's bride, uh, would be a, having those people in leadership would be a, a truly bad thing. I'm reminded of, um, it was Paul Washer, I'm pretty sure, I'd, I'll misquote it, so I'll, I'll paraphrase. Uh, but he, he talks about, in a message that he was giving, you know, if, if somebody were to, to mistreat my wife, and he says, you'd better watch out because I, I love my wife. I value my wife. She is the, the apple of my eye. So if someone were to mistreat my wife, then watch out. Similarly, uh, to the elder who is in a position of eldership and yet does not match these characteristics, this is God's bride that you are messing with. And so if, if Paul Washer, a, a holy man as he may be, if Paul Washer is saying, watch out, just imagine what the king of glory, who has all authority, uh, would say to those who mistreat his church. So it's a warning to those who are not in leadership in a right way, but it's also a cause for us to praise God for leaders who do qualify. We don't just want to dwell on the negative, I suppose, but to praise God for the positive, those who do qualify and are in such positions. And so may we pray uh, that there would be more and more uh, of these godly folks within leadership positions, certainly within the church and without the church also, uh, and that their godly effect would be plentiful. So to conclude, uh, it's uh, really a fairly simple uh, message and I'm, I'm thankful for uh, as I say, the opportunity to have looked through the second chapter of Titus over the last few weeks because I've realized really it's quite a simple message. Uh, and so hopefully as you perhaps go back and read through the verses, uh, you can see there's, it's not a lot of uh, deep theological difficult stuff to interpret. Uh, it's really a pretty practical and, and simple section, I should say. But two points uh, for you to remember today. When the elder or the leader declares, exhorts, and rebukes, assuming they are doing so within the scope of God's word, 
they are doing so with all authority. This is because they are doing so with God's authority as their foundation, on his say-so, we might say. And hence the one declaring, exhorting or rebuking ought to let no one disregard them, uh, no matter what the pushback. And secondly, it's, it's sobering for the one doing the declaring, exhorting and rebuking, and it's sobering for the one receiving, because both are bound by the authority of God. And so inasmuch as the leader uh, declares within those bounds, they ought to do so with all authority. And again, in as much as one, the leader does so within those bounds, then we who hear ought to receive it as with all authority coming from God himself. Let's pray. Lord, indeed, just a, a few moments ago, we, we considered uh, with sobriety, I hope, that those who exercise leadership positions within the church um, are, are doing so unto your bride. And so ought to do so with, with great sobriety, with a fear uh, of the things of you. But Lord, we also reflected that there are those who are within such a position having matched these characteristics which you advocate. And so may we give you thanks for these folks. May we pray for them. May we pray that their number would increase and that the effect which you have through them would increase. And Lord, may, may we declare, exhort, and rebuke with all authority, letting no one disregard us, uh, inasmuch as we do so within the scope of the roles you've given us. Thank you for this chapter. Thank you for your word on whole. May it continue to have a great effect upon us. In Jesus' name, amen.